This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the movement to end human trafficking started in the mid-1990s. Since then, multiple offices to combat the crime have been set up across the federal government, including the State Department. That office's director joins us to discuss how human trafficking is changing and what the U.S. government is doing to prevent it worldwide. Then, the Environmental Protection Agency is constantly innovating to create solutions and find answers to environmental health threats. The agency's assistant administrator for research and development discusses some of the agency's biggest projects. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Every year, millions of people are trafficked worldwide, including within the United States. The State Department has an office dedicated to saving potential victims. Carrie Johnstone is the acting director of the Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. Carrie, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. You know, a lot of people have an idea of what human trafficking is. What is it actually? So human trafficking is fundamentally a crime of exploitation. Traffickers are exploiting other people for uh, labor or commercial sex. Uh, and they're doing so through what we call force, fraud, or coercion. So fundamentally, it is about making someone um, either work or engage in commercial sex against their will. And who is most vulnerable to becoming a victim? So sadly, almost anyone is vulnerable. It's a crime that occurs virtually everywhere in the world. You noted that it's a problem in the United States as well. Um, we find that particularly vulnerable people are those that um, don't necessarily have a good support system. So often uh, minorities or underserved communities may be particularly targeted. Um, women and children often may be targeted. Also sexual minorities, LGBTQI uh, individuals as well, people with disabilities. Um, sadly, uh, traffickers find ways to exploit all kinds of people uh, and take advantage of vulnerabilities or um, lack of support that people may have. And the Ukraine war is, has probably, you know, tragically made that those people very ripe for trafficking. So what's going on there? So you're right, any conflict um, or any time that people are on the move, they may be even more vulnerable to trafficking, um, often because they don't have that support system that they may have at home. They may not speak the language, they might not have uh, work or family or know who they can turn to for good advice about how to stay safe. Um, we are very concerned that Russia's war on Ukraine has made uh, the people both in Ukraine and those that have been fleeing Ukraine, Ukrainians and others, third country nationals as well, um, even more vulnerable to trafficking. Um, we're particularly nervous about the fact that approximately 90% of the people who have fled Ukraine because of Russia's war are women and children, and they're particularly vulnerable um, anywhere in the world. Uh, so we are very worried about that. We're very encouraged by the fast, coordinated, and really serious efforts that the government of Ukraine and governments throughout Europe and the region, especially in the neighboring states, um, immediately started taking to try to protect Ukrainians and those fleeing the war. Um, and that included a lot of information and awareness raising about things that Ukrainians and those fleeing the war could do to keep themselves safe, like keeping their passports, keeping their cell phones, not giving them to someone. Um, those governments and also international organizations like the UNHCR or the International Organization for Migration also put steps in place to register. We all, I think, found it really heartwarming to see how many people 
open their hearts and homes to Ukrainians and those fleeing the war, and also people coming and volunteering, you know, flooding to the borders to offer transportation and housing. We also, from a trafficking perspective, saw a lot of risk in those circumstances. So we were really pleased to see that governments and international organizations were quickly putting steps in place to register the volunteers and people offering uh, both transportation and housing for those individuals that were fleeing the war so that we could make sure that it was safe people that really did have good intentions to try to keep them safe. Is your office doing anything to help those refugees? I'm, I'm assuming there's not much that can be done for those that are still in Ukraine. Um, well, we're actually working within Ukraine as well. Um, we have been working with an international organization for several years to build the Ukrainian government capacity and civil society because civil society also has an important, important role to play to keep people safe. And then once victims are exploited by traffickers, um, civil society and governments uh, work together to identify those victims and get them the care that they need. So we have been working in Ukraine. Um, you're right, it's a difficult circumstance given the, the ongoing war there. Um, our office has also been working with our colleagues throughout the State Department and our embassies all around, um, especially within Europe, but also as we see Ukrainians are moving further and further away as the war lingers uh, to both uh, alert governments, help build their capacity. We saw, for example, the government of Poland increased uh, its patrolling of police along the border when the Ukrainians and others were leaving the country. So we've been providing foreign assistance as well. Um, both to help build the government capacity as well as civil society capacity throughout the region. And this isn't your only overseas effort. You have an office called the program, or, or you created a program to end modern slavery. What is that? What's it about? Yeah, thank you so much. This is actually a congressional initiative um, that is one of our showcase programs uh, that's called, as you said, the program to end modern slavery. It is really focused on cutting edge research to understand the scope of the problem and be able to measurably reduce human trafficking within specific populations or countries where we're working. So one of the things that we're really excited about within the broader anti-trafficking field, there has long been um, a lot of programming and efforts that people have made, but we haven't had really good research to understand what's working and frankly, even the scope of the problem. It's a hidden crime. A lot of times trafficking victims don't come forward. It's often happening um, in ways that aren't, aren't easy to measure. So we've been investing a lot in cutting edge research, working with academics and other experts so that we can better understand the scope of the problem and then actually measure what is working um, as we all are trying very hard to end this problem. You mentioned that victims are very reluctant to come forward. Obviously they've been victimized, but what are the ways that you can get them to come forward so that you can go after the perpetrators and end this? Yeah, that's a really important uh, point and question. Thanks so much for asking it. Um, a lot of victims, they may, may not be able to come forward or they may be afraid of coming forward. A lot of times their traffickers lie to them and tell them that if they do come forward and report the crime, that they themselves may be arrested or deported if they're in another country, especially illegally. Sadly, that does often happen, that when victims are not identified, they often may actually be punished more often than the traffickers themselves. So governments have an important role to play in proactively looking for victims of trafficking because they're not like, you know, someone was assaulted or had their purse stolen, they may go report it to the police. Trafficking victims are not likely to do that. So governments usually working with civil society um, can work to help find those victims. For example, in the United States, um, the Department of Health and Human Services funds our national trafficking hotline 
and that's where people can call if they themselves think they might have been a victim or they know someone or they saw something that might be suspicious. And that's one of the really important ways in the United States, for example, that we identify trafficking victims. All right, Carrie, we're going to take a pause here, so just stand by. When we come back, I'll continue my conversation with Carrie Johnstone, the acting director of the Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. Stay with us. I'm back with Carrie Johnstone, the acting director of the Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. Carrie, how has the internet changed the way people are trafficked? Yeah, that's a really important question and one that, that is very much on the minds of those of us that are fighting human trafficking. Um, we have seen that traffickers increasingly use the internet to find and target human traffickers. Um, we've all heard about recruiting that happens online that can be related to human trafficking. Unfortunately, we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic a real increase in online recruitment um, for trafficking uh, really bloomed. It was already a problem, but it really increased dramatically during the pandemic. We've also seen increasingly that the crime of human trafficking itself, the actual exploitation, um, especially of sex trafficking, is happening online. So we've, we see cases where often even children, they may never even leave their home, that they may be victims of sex trafficking online. Um, and we're happy to see that uh, governments are building their capacity, but it is really um, a growing problem and one that we're all working to try to figure out how we can address. I wonder if social media companies are doing anything to, to help stop this. Yeah, they're increasingly um, taking steps to try to keep people safe online and putting in some protections. Like governments and everyone else, they can certainly do more. Um, we were really encouraged to see in September in Seattle, um, Tech Against Trafficking hosted its first summit, and they brought together the tech industry, other private sector, uh, governments, some international organizations, civil society, and survivors of human trafficking. For the first time, bringing them all together to really think about not only what harm can be done on the internet and through social media in terms of trafficking um, and uh, harm to the victims, but also how the internet and social media can be used for good to help both fight the traffickers, prosecute the traffickers, and also even more importantly, find and care for the victims. I wonder what the trends have been. You've been working in this field for, for many years. What have you seen? So one of the trends that we've seen um, is just that in terms of online uh, trafficking, especially sex trafficking, increasing. Um, we did see, uh, unfortunately, during the pandemic that uh, as government resources may have been directed to addressing the pandemic, um, and that a lot of people, both their livelihoods may, may, may have been affected by the pandemic, that vulnerabilities increased and traffickers have adapted um, and really took advantage of that during the pandemic. Um, one way is the increase of online trafficking. Um, we've also seen uh, an increase in forced criminality over the last several years, uh, whereby traffickers force someone, again, through forced fraud or coercion, to engage in criminal behavior. So that might look like um, drug-related activity, cultivation or transportation, um, or other kinds of uh, forced criminality that sadly seems to be a growing phenomenon. I wonder who these traffickers are, actually. I mean, who, who are the perpetrators? So they're varied. You know, as I said, it can happen almost anywhere, uh, including in the United States. Often it may be large organized uh, criminal organizations that are engaging in this, but it also can be individuals, um, for example, employers who abuse their domestic workers. They might be people that are, you know, maids or nannies in their home or home health care workers that um, may be subjected just by their employer, so not a large organization, 
they might be owners of small businesses or farms. We see that agriculture and construction, for example, um, are two industries that are particularly vulnerable to human trafficking in the United States and around the world. So traffickers can really be almost anyone, sadly. There are several offices within the federal government that are focused on combating human trafficking. What makes your office unique and how do we know that you guys are working together and there's no duplication of effort? Yeah, that's a really important question um, on the, the coordination and duplication of effort. Uh, so when Congress passed the Trafficking Victim Protection Act in 2000, it created a coordinating body to make sure that the federal government is working together. Um, that is called the President's Interagency Task Force to monitor and combat human trafficking. That is now comprised of 20 different federal departments and agencies so that we all work together and coordinate um, well our anti-trafficking efforts, both at home and abroad. Uh, and that is a cabinet level meeting that meets at the White House annually uh, to really coordinate those efforts. The Secretary of State uh, chairs that task force, um, so we have an important role in helping coordinate those efforts uh, within our office and supporting the Secretary of State in that role. Um, we have a different, a variety of roles that we play within our office. First and foremost, the State Department's mission is diplomacy. So our core work is working with federal, with other governments around the world, with international organizations, civil society, um, other experts uh, to fight human trafficking and care for victims globally, help build the capacity um, and raise awareness of other governments and other institutions around the world. We also produce an annual report on human trafficking where we assess government efforts across 188 countries and territories, including the United States. And we have foreign assistance programs where, again, we help build the capacity and of both governments and civil society to address the crime and uh, protect victims. And we talked about you know the private sector with some social media companies and, and uh, internet companies. What else can the private sector do, the nonprofit sector, and just regular citizens do? That is a, a, such an important question because we all have a role to play. First and foremost, governments have responsibilities. Most of us have taken commitments um, both to our citizens uh, and our own um, laws, but also international commitments that we've taken to fight the crime. Civil society, as I mentioned, plays a hugely important role. Uh, in helping identify and provide services. In the United States, almost all of our services for trafficking victims, even those that are funded by the U.S. government, are actually provided for by um, civil society, nonprofit organizations. The private sector, as you said, does have a really important role to play to make sure that it is not perpetuating human trafficking. Um, and there's an increasing focus on and commitments to understanding their own supply chains, which is not easy, and we know that, um, but it's really important. We, the U.S. government, also have some real commitments to make sure that we're not purchasing goods and services that have any human trafficking in our own supply chains as well. Carrie, thank you so much for the work that you do and for being on the program. Thank you so much, Mimi, for raising awareness about this important issue. After the break, the Environmental Protection Agency is focused on finding lead exposure hotspots. We discuss how researchers are doing that and the challenges they face. EPA's Office of Research and Development is developing solutions and creating a better understanding of how the environment impacts public health. Chris Frey is the office's assistant administrator. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. I want to talk, uh, I want to start with lead because your office is um, leading an effort to identify lead service lines. Tell us about that and what's the objective? Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, there is no safe level of exposure to lead. 
And lead is particularly pernicious in terms of health effects for children. Um, and once lead is in the body, it also stays in the body for a long time. So it also has uh, adverse effects for adults. Uh, there are many exposure sources for lead, but one of the important ones is lead that is in drinking water from uh, lead that's in old service lines. So these are lines that connect a water main to a house. Um, some of these lines were installed 100 years ago or you know, roughly. And at that time, lead was a common pipe material. Um, so what we know is that um, these lead service lines are a source of continuous exposure through drinking water uh, for uh, millions of Americans. And the, the president, with support of the Congress, has, through the bipartisan infrastructure law, provided $15 billion in funding to remove lead service lines. And in order to remove them, we need to know where they are. <laughs> And because these lines are so old in many cases, there's not existing records of where they are. And so we have to find them. Yeah, so how do you find them? Yeah, and so the challenge is uh, for our researchers in, in the Office of Research and Development is how can we find low-cost, non-invasive ways that avoid just digging and looking for service lines that happen to be led? And so one, one uh, kind of trick is that we can sample water that's coming through the service line and assess is there lead in it, and then based on how we do the sampling, that implicates that there is a lead service line. And so we're using that kind of scientific principle to provide technical assistance to communities uh, to help with um, identifying and then uh, replacing lead service lines. Another research area for your office is PFAS. What, what are those chemicals and what's their impact? Yeah, PFAS are, um, literally thousands of chemicals, and these are engineered chemicals that um, have been invented over decades to serve various functions that, uh, you know, non-stick cookware or water-repellent clothing or what's called aqueous film-forming foam for firefighting foam. And all of these have, uh, you know, beneficial engineering properties, but it turns out that these chemicals have a very long lifetime and they get into the environment, into the, the water, into the soil, for example, into the air. And we're um, beginning to learn about the adverse effect that human exposure to these chemicals has for human health and, and also for environmental health. I want to ask you about environmental disparities. That's a big focus for the EPA. It's a focus for the administration. What is your office doing to better understand environmental disparities and how that impacts people's health? Yes, this is a, a major priority of um, the administration and of the agency. Um, President Biden, in his first week or two in office, signed two executive orders uh, that relate to environmental justice and also the effects of changing climate on exacerbating disparities for overburdened communities. Um, because the mission of the agency is to protect human health and the environment, it's important that we do that for everybody, regardless of skin color or race or ethnicity or, or income or language. And, um, and this includes rural and urban communities throughout the country that are facing disproportionate exposures because of historical permitting practices, um, because of how highways have been cited, uh, 
And, and so we're trying in, in our Office of Research and Development, from a scientific point of view, understand how do those disparities in exposure affect health and how do those combine with what we call non-chemical stressors? So non-chemical stressors are also called social determinants of health. But what that means is a community that is overexposed to pollution and at the same time lacks access to healthcare or jobs um, or green spaces um, faces additional stress. And in the science community, there's, there's really leading edge work on um, a concept called biological aging, which is that we're finding in these overburdened, overstressed communities, the biological age is, is more than the chronological age, um, meaning enhanced aging. And then that, that brings in other risks that come with enhanced biological age. So we're looking at how all these different environmental stressors and then non-environmental stressors interact. And then what can we do to inform decisions within the Environmental Protection Agency, but also recognize that um, there has to also be a whole of government approach working with federal partners to, to bring solutions to communities. I wonder briefly, Chris, what's your big research focus area going to be for next year? Well, we, we have a number of main research priorities. Give me one. <laughs> I'll give you one is climate change. And uh, where ORD and EPA have an important role is on climate change adaptation. Um, we are looking at how do we help communities become more resilient in the face of changing climate. Um, and this includes uh, resilience to heat stress, to changing frequency and severity of storms, uh, flooding and drought, wildfires. All right, Chris, well, we're out of time. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about, but thank you so much. You're welcome. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. 
It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.